0: I know I'm not the only one out there who loves to read uh, in your spare time, and maybe you're one of those people who very rarely stops a book partway through and puts it down, no matter how much you're not really enjoying the book. I see a few smiles out there, kindred spirits. So I'm telling you about a couple of books that that happened uh, to me with. One was Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. I love Jane Austen, but I'm telling you, I got so tired of those people rattling on as they walked around that lake that I just thought I would leave them at the lake and pick up another book. didn't have the same kind of punch, for me at least, that some of her other works do. Another one I just did recently, why this is a, which is why this is on my mind, some of you probably know Reginald Hill. He writes mysteries about uh, Pascal and and uh, uh, DL, that's how you pronounce it. They say Dalziel out east. Anyway, DL, and again, I just got so tired of it, I put it down and picked up a different book, recommended to me by Father Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. One of the mystery writers I never seem to put down is Louise Penny. Do you know her? She has to be a closet Anglican, for one thing. And she was a CBC commentator at one point in her life, and she writes novels set primarily in the eastern townships of Quebec, and they sometimes bleed into the city of Montreal or Quebec City. And I find that there are wonderful character studies in those books, as well as wonderful whodunits. Her inspector's name is Inspector Gamache, kind of a gentleman, philosopher, police officer. And if you read any of her books, you know that a certain line is always going to appear out of the mouth of Inspector Gamache. And that is the statement, tell me what you know. Tell me what you know. In other words, don't start with speculation don't start to solve the puzzle without really grappling with the facts of the puzzle. Simply tell me what you know. I think that's a good approach for tackling the puzzle of today's gospel reading. Imagine Inspector Gamash up here with me saying, tell me what you know. In other words, don't start to speculate about the possibilities. Well, maybe you know, the master thought this, and well, well, maybe it was that the steward or the manager thought that. we have no idea what they were thinking. All we have before us is a story laid out by Jesus. When I was preaching one time in a, about a similar story, when I was a curate at St. Paul's Church in Halifax. I spoke about the parable of the prodigal son, another difficult passage. I focused on the older brother, and I wasn't very easy on him, let's just put it that way. And one of the people coming out of the church at the end said to me, I hope he can forgive you when you meet him in heaven. And I said, well, that should be easy because he doesn't exist. I know, it was kind of a snarly comment, but it was a long day. These people don't exist in this story. We need to take this story as we are given it, not speculate on what it might mean. Martin Luther says there are certain passages of the Scripture that you have to squeeze hard in order to help the gospel leak out of them. So let's squeeze it. Let's think about it. Let's talk about what's actually there rather than softening it up with what we wish was there. So what are the bare-bones things we know, Inspector Gamash? What are the bare-bones bare things we know in this passage, this, the facts that take place? We know we have some kind of a business, which is most likely either a vineyard or a farm, because those where you needed a manager. So we know that much. We know that the manager or steward has been a little on the dishonest side, maybe embezzling, squandering what belonged to somebody else. We know that much. And we know that a steward is somebody who's responsible for something that belongs to someone else and that they always get into trouble when they start to see that that belongs to them. We know that. We know that The steward loses the job as manager. Now, we don't know that unemployment is what comes next. I don't think it is because it says, I cannot dig. In other words, I can't be demoted in the organization. Nor can I beg. So what am I going to do? Well, it's pretty clever what the manager figures out to do. What you have is a situation of indebtedness. You have the master of the company with certain people indebted to him, having borrowed from him. And you have the manager keeping a track of who owes what. So what the manager does is he goes off to each of those people and says, tell me what you owe. Well, I owe 50 measures of oil. Well, go grab your pen and paper and write out a new contract for half that. I owe so many measures of wheat. Okay, good. Well, let's cut that down to this. Go get your pen and paper and reduce it. So it's not scratching it out and initialing the change, it's duping The manager or sorry the office owner who has trusted him and at the same time making those who are indebted to the master indebted to him do you see that that's all that talk about you know make friends for yourself with dishonest wealth and they owe you one basically when he goes to them for a favor can they say no why not because then he can go to the master and say, hey, guess what? They falsified the documents. I saw them do it. Here's what they really owe you. So do you see the cleverness of the situation there? But do you see the crunch? Do you see the crunch? Tell me what you know. Well, we know that this is what is said. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light." And that's the tough, tough, tough part of this story. And we don't know how it ends, do we? We don't know the tone in which that statement is delivered. Say the words were along these lines. Well, you're something else. If you tell me something and I say, well, you're something else. Or I say, you are something else. Amazing. Very different interpretations, aren't they? So we don't really know whether this commending is sarcastic or whether it's laudatory. So at nine o'clock, I treated it as if it was sarcastic. Now I'm going to treat it as if it's laudatory. Because if we squeeze this passage really hard, I think the challenge for us is much greater than business and honesty and what we do with what belongs to someone else. I think it becomes about grace. And grace is what is at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what if we just take it at face value? What if Jesus, through this master, is praising what the steward did? What if? You know, it's not impossible that that's what it means. We call this the parable of the unjust steward, or the dishonest manager, but that was not an original title for this passage. It was just a passage in the Bible, had no title. It's just one of the stories that Jesus told. And the problem with slapping a title on it is that it can become a label and we can think we have it all summed up. It's really great to say, oh Jesus, tell us that one about the dishonest manager, you know, like we've, that one there. But when we start to think that's all this is about, that this guy is unredeemable, has no place in God's kingdom, so why on earth would Jesus praise him? I think that's where we lose sight of the grace of God. What if all that is being said here is, look, what you have been given in your life as my disciples doesn't simply belong to you either in the way that these goods did not belong to the manager. I have given you certain talents. I have given you a brain. I have given you a certain amount of wealth. Not to be selfish with it, but to use it in service. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot have two number ones. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And I would extend that to say you cannot serve both God and yourself. So which one is it going to be? You see, because if Jesus is saying about this dishonest manager, yeah, he made a mistake. He did something truly awful, and his response wasn't great either. But that doesn't mean that he is completely bad. That doesn't mean that there is no good in him. And rather than simply dismissing him I choose to point out what is good in him. You have acted in a shrewd way. If you were simply to take those gifts of negotiation and creative thought and use them for purposes of good, just think of the changes you could make in this world. I choose to massage the good, to water the good seed, whatever you want to say. I refuse to give up on this guy entirely. It strikes me that the gospel is found more there in that squeeze than anywhere else. So the message for us, I think, or one of them, there's so many here in this passage today, but one I don't want us to miss because we're stuck on one little word or two, is the message that God is a God of second chances and third chances. And fourth chances, and fifth chances, and I'm not good at math and I don't know where it ends, but I just remember that little number eight lying on its side that meant infinity. God never ceases to forgive, God never ceases to love, God never ceases to want to transform us, and God wants to use us to transform the world, not through judgment, not through finger pointing, but through forgiveness and love. And mercy, shown even to a scoundrel like this dishonest manager. So don't write anyone off. Don't sum anyone up. Don't believe for one moment that God will ever write you off, and don't summon yourself up with your past mistakes either. Because God cracks open the hardness of human hearts, the dishonesty of the human imagination and draws out the light and the love through his grace. And I think that's what's going on here today. And that's what we are called to do as children of God, as we interact with those around us. Amen.